Good morning. It's, it's great to be here, and um, I'm so glad that all of you are, are, are joining us together, that we are a body. Um, today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 11 to 14. And I'd like for all of us to read this together. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. Many of you know that over the past two weeks, uh, we've been in an Advent series with the desire to, to adore Jesus Christ, focusing on the, on the three offices of, of king, prophet, and priest. First, Pastor Carey taught that Jesus is the rightful and deserving king in all of history. And he challenged us by asking if he is king of our lives. And then Pastor Levi preached about how Jesus filled the office of, of prophet, but also fulfilling the prophecies of him. And I pray that we were convicted to live by hearing, obeying, proclaiming God's word, fulfilled in Christ. And today we, we come to a close in the Advent series, looking at how Jesus fulfills the office of priest specifically high priest. And the message draws a lot from the book of Hebrews, which is quite fitting because Hebrews is easily, easily um, the most comprehensive book talking about Jesus as the high priest. The author is writing a letter, perhaps a sermon, to the Hebrews, which includes Jews and, and possibly Gentiles who are, who are quite familiar and comfortable with the Jewish religion. We, however, are probably not. Unless we were raised in a, in a practicing, devout Jewish home. And so already there's going to be this huge gap that limits how much we can relate to Jesus being our high priest. And because Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant of the Israelites, knowing the Old Testament is extremely important for us to better know why Jesus came and what he did. See, the advent of our Lord isn't random. Jesus came into a specific context. And we learn about this context through the Old Testament. And I'm sure many of you already know to think like this. But I say all of this because we sometimes still tend to shy away from the Old Testament. It's, it can be boring. It can be difficult. And it's so different from the New Testament that it might even seem irrelevant to us, right? The New Testament is great. It's full of rich teaching and doctrine. It's full of practical guidance. Not to mention it, it, it has the gospel itself and the direct revelation of Christ. But let me tell you that knowing the Old Testament will only help us to know who Jesus is better. 
In Luke 24, after Jesus was resurrected, he, he sees two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, and as he was teaching them all the things in the scriptures, and that's, that would be the Old Testament for us, all the things concerning himself, these two men, they, they couldn't help but feel the passion stirring in their hearts, the passion that comes from knowing God. In fact, when they realized that they had been talking to Jesus himself, they said to each other, hey, look, didn't, didn't our hearts burn within us, right? While he talked to us on the road, while he, while he opened us to the scriptures, And have you ever felt that passion? And if you have, don't you want that again and again? And so studying Genesis to Malachi will make Jesus appear more beautiful and more radiant. It will help us to have a proper fear of God and help us to adore Christ more. And this is even why here at FBC, we go, we go back and forth between preaching from the Old and New Testament books. Now, it just so happens that um, we've just now finished John chapter 11. It took us a year. And, you know, we have 11 chapters left. No pressure, Pastor James. Please take your time. But I, I say all of this because because I sincerely want us to thirst. To thirst to the point where, even today, this weekend, we go home and we want to learn more about the priesthood and the sacrificial system with the expectation that as we learn more, we will grow closer to God and love him more. So having said this, let me pray, and then I'll dive right in. God of our salvation, we're gathered here to adore you, and we humbly ask that you speak through your word and work in us today. Help us to be in awe of what Jesus has done for us, and we pray this in the name of our great high priest, amen. I think it's safe to say that almost all of us here know the gospel. And when the gospel is presented in the narrative of, of Jesus having died for our sins so that God can forgive us, we're, we're mainly referring, actually, to, to Jesus' role as the high priest. Know why? Because, because the priesthood and the sacrificial system were created to deal with sin. They exist because of sin. See, when sin entered the world through Adam, mankind and all of creation became corrupt and could no longer be in right standing with God. We know that the wages of sin is death. And this punishment is first recorded in Genesis. From the beginning, God told man, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this death is, 
It is a physical death, but it's also the eternal separation from God who is the source of life himself. And without a relationship with God, we shouldn't be asking ourselves, how should I live? But rather, we should be asking ourselves, how do I not die? Now, sin left untouched will permeate like a weed into every corner of the world. And in Noah's time, the world was unrecognizable, no longer bearing the image of God, no longer ref- not, not even a reflection or a fingerprint of who God is left in this world. And so for God who is holy, a holy judgment calls for death. And that's the flood. But a holy love calls for grace. And that's the priesthood. I know that the law with a with a capital L is referring to how God commanded his how his people to live. This is often pitted against grace. But you must understand that before Jesus came to earth in the flesh, the Jewish religion was the channel through which God's grace and redemption came to this world. See, in order for God who is holy to be with an unholy people, sin and its effects needed to be dealt with. And so the priesthood and the sacrificial system were created to manage sin. And the Jewish priests, they can be seen as as mediators, standing between the the heavenly realm of God where there is no sin and and the earthly realm of man where there is sin. They were, they had this special relationship where, where they're between the divine and the human. So that a holy God could still be in a relationship with sinful man. And therefore, it makes sense that a, a major job description of the priests actually was as mediators to make sure that the people were holy. In other words, their job was sin management. And so what exactly did holiness entail? Well, to be holy meant to live according to God's rule and not according to man's rule. There were 613 commandments. There are in the Old Testament. And God gave these laws because because you can't can't say to the God who saved you that that you're going to follow him but then do whatever you want. God didn't have to save you. In fact, God has every right to kill you. Right? And, and you know how powerful he is. Right? You can't say to the God who saved you, thank you for saving me, but I'm, I'm going to go back to my life now and, and I'm going to forget about you. But, or, or maybe I'll call you. Right? You, can't, you can't turn your back on God because... Because you met him. And when you meet God, you, you fear for your life. But 
the same time, you, you want to love him. That's what it means to meet God. And that's why you will do what he asks you to do. Because you want to do that. That's the nature of God. And we are not God. And so God's people followed God's laws while the rest of the world followed their own. And among God's laws were also the cleanliness laws, which was a specific way of being clean, part of holiness. And I, and I highly recommend that you go home and read about these laws in, in Leviticus chapters 11 to 15. And there you'll find incredible detail about, about the method, the, the circumstances, and even, even the timing of being clean. And it's, it's, it's mind-boggling how meticulous the Israelites had to be. It's, all, it's almost as if God was, God was demanding too much. Because how can anyone, how can, how can an entire nation do this, keep these rules? But God was proving the point that he is a pure and holy God. Be holy because I am holy. And these cleanliness laws, they were showing the idea of spiritual cross-contamination. Meaning if something clean and unclean came into contact with each other, both would become unclean. And so this taught the people just how hard it was not only to become clean, but also to stay clean. And more importantly, this taught the people that they needed to be cleansed if they were to enter God's presence. And so you have, you have a priesthood who knows God more intimately than the rest because they handle God's word and laws and they understand that God is holy and his people need to be cleansed. And that is why the most important job that, that the priests had was to offer sacrifices. Because in, in order for God to be with his people, ultimately the people needed to be cleansed, not from, not from things like dirt or sickness, but because of sin. That's what they needed to be cleansed from. And to be cleansed from sin meant to be forgiven of sin. And to be forgiven of sin required the spilling of blood, the sacrifice of life. Okay, now, talking about sacrificing, sacrificing living things, this is where we start to become a little distant from the Old Testament, where we stop relating because we simply don't live in a culture that sacrifices animals anymore, do we? The people used to a lot. Especially, especially they sacrificed a lot if they were not following or believing in the God of Abraham. But the way that God taught his people to sacrifice was different. It was a different way from how the others were sacrificing. God's way reflected absolute truth, the real truth. And the truth was that if all sin is against God, and the punishment of sin 
is death. Then to forgive that sin would require another life. And it's, it's clear in Scripture that God does not condone human sacrifices, and so that's why animals were sacrificed. But it wasn't just the killing of life that was required. It was the spilling of blood. Blood was extremely important for forgiveness to the point where God prohibited his people from even eating blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, God says, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so in God's eyes, eating blood would have been sacrilege because, because who are you, a sinner, to, to dare touch, to consume the blood that has the life that God himself gave? And this is why Hebrews 9.22 reads that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the whole priesthood existed because of sin. And there was a definitive understanding that the sacrificial system was, was necessary for the Israelites to be in any relationship with God. And the priests were, were mediators between God and his people, helping manage sin and its effects, bringing the holy order from the heavens down onto earth. And all this so that God could be with his people. And this is why the priesthood is a means of grace. The priests help keep the people clean and holy, especially through the forgiveness of sins, which was the removal of sins. And regarding the forgiveness of sin, let me tell you that it was the high priest who had the most important role because his job was to offer sacrifices that would take away the sins of the entire nation on the Day of Atonement. But I'll get back to that later. First, why don't we look at the book of Hebrews and take a look at Jesus as the high priest. According to Hebrews, there were qualifications for becoming the high priest. If we can read Hebrews 5, 1 to 4 together. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so we know that that the high priest had to be chosen from among men in order to be mankind's representative and mediator. Now, what I'm about to say is probably highly ridiculously obvious, but it seems that from these two conditions already, the high priest had to be human. Moreover, the high priest had to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, and interestingly enough, being human the high priest had to atone for his own sins first before atoning for the sins of others. And this would be, this would be the killing of a bull far larger than, 
than a dove or a lamb. And the goal would be that as he, as he kills the animal, as he sees the fear in his eyes, as he, as he feels the, the resistance in full force, as he hears the screaming cries of the animal, as its blood is being spilled, and he offers it to the Lord, and as he watches the life of this innocent animal being taken away so that, so that he could live, it's because of his sins that the high priest, in, in, in all of this, the high priest would be humbled, brought to a place of recognizing his own sinfulness and flaws. And then in humility, approaching the task of atoning, of ministering to others, atoning for their sins. And the last qualification in Hebrews 5 is that nobody, nobody could sign up to become the high priest. You didn't sign a connect card. You didn't uh, book an appointment with the senior pastor to, to, to sign up as a high priest. No, you didn't. You had to be called by God. And so these were the qualifications. And to make a, a very long story even shorter, the high priesthood was imperfect. And we can take divine calling, for instance. Now, may I remind you that we've been going through the Gospel of John here at FBC. And do you remember Caiaphas, the high priest? Well, in chapter 11, verses 49, and again in 52, maybe, maybe you've observed that it says, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Well, Caiaphas was the high priest that year because by that time, Herod had been appointing the high priest almost every year. But what, what did we just read about appointment? Who, who was the one to appoint the high priest. It was God, not Herod, not any man. But what about Jesus? Well, first of all, Hebrews 5.5 says that Jesus didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest. And to show that Jesus was appointed by God, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110, in which God declares you, referring to Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I'm, and I'm sorry that I simply don't have the time to, to go into Melchizedek, but, but that's all the more reason for us to learn and study the scriptures more to better know who Jesus is. And on top of God appointing Jesus as high priest forever, you know, Jesus came as a human. And remember how I said that, that even though it was really obvious, it was important. Jesus' advent as a human meant that he was qualified to represent us. And when we talk about how Jesus is the better prophet or priest or king, we're, we're taking into consideration both his divinity and humanity. But when it comes to the priesthood, it's actually necessary for the priest to be a human. This means that Jesus isn't just a better high priest because he's God. And so by default, he's better at everything. No, he's better also because he's human. He's the only human 
whoever achieved perfection on earth, and to have lived every moment obeying the Father, always giving thanks, always rejoicing, always glorifying God in, in eating and drinking in all that he did. And because Jesus was human, he suffered, not in the same way that we do because of our sin, but because as a human, he had never experienced these things before. And the way that Jesus differs from us in our suffering is that he endured the sufferings while being fully obedient to the Father's will and laws. And so Jesus actually grew in perfection, the author of Hebrews writes, through his sufferings. Nobody else has ever done this before. Only Jesus. And that's why. That's why we have a high priest who can sympathize. Who knows how to intercede on our behalf. Who isn't, who isn't distant and irrelevant because he doesn't know our experiences. So trust in what the Bible has to say when it says that Jesus, as our high priest, knows to sympathize with us today. He really knows what you are going through today. He's been, he's been a nobody. He's been used by people. He's been ridiculed and made fun of. Nobody believed him, and certainly nobody ever, in all the waking moments of his life on earth, nobody ever understood him. Can you, can you imagine what, what that could be like? Yeah, you can, because we've, we've been there before. He's been, he's been betrayed and abandoned by his closest. He's, he's wanted to run away and, and give it all up, begging the Father, please take this cup away from me. And in, in the lowest of lows ever experienced by a human, he questions the Father, why did you leave me? It's because Jesus came on earth that he lived and suffered as a human. And so he can sympathize with you. And it's great news because it means that you are not alone. And the greater news is that is that this high priest that we have in Jesus didn't die. He lives forever. The others died. And every time they did, they, they had to appoint a new high priest. Now what a shame, what a tragedy it would be if, if finally we have this perfect high priest who's, who's as holy as God is because he's the son of God and at the same time, he's, he's on our side because he is the second Adam. But then he dies and becomes nothing more than just a legacy and a memory. What a shame it would be. The people of God know our Jesus. He rose again from the dead. Amen? And to go back to an earlier point, I had mentioned that the high priest had the most important role. 
Because on the day of atonement, he's the one who made the sacrifice that would atone for the sins. Now, this was the only day when anyone could ever enter the innermost and holiest place in the house of God. And that's what we call the holy of holies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here because it says here to pause. <laughs> to get myself ready and, and also to ask you to focus now. Focus, because there's going to be a lot of detail coming at you, a wall of words. But I promise you that this is going somewhere. This is going to Christ, our Lord and Savior. So the payoff is going to be worth it, okay? And so if anyone's sleeping, wake, wake them up. It's, it's for their sake. You know, stretch. Do whatever you need to do. Okay. So this holy of holies, the most holy place. And to give you an idea of the superlative nature, the highest degree of holiness about this room, I'm going to draw from a, a Jewish play. Here we go. In, in terms of place, Israel was the holiest land in the world, and Jerusalem was the holiest city. In this city was God's temple, the holiest place on earth, and in this temple was the holy of holies. In terms of person, in this holiest land lived the holiest people group in all the world, the Israelites. And of the 12 tribes of Israelites, the holiest were the Levites, who were dedicated to the service of God's temple. And of these servants, the holiest were the priests, and of the priests, the holiest was the high priest chosen by God himself. In terms of, in terms of time, I'm sure that you can guess that, that the holiest day would be the, the Sabbath. But the Sabbath of Sabbaths, that was the day of atonement. And in terms of, in terms of word of all the languages spoken by all the peoples on the earth, the holiest language was Hebrew. And of all that was spoken and written in Hebrew, the holiest was the Torah, or the Old Testament as we know it. And, it. and of the Torah, it was the Ten Commandments that was considered the holiest. And in those commandments, by the way, the Ten Commandments was also in the Holy of Holies housed in the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the content of the Ten Commandments, the, the holiest word ever to exist was the name of God. And so the Day of Atonement isn't just a day of, of the most important sacrifice. No, it's, this is when the holiest elements come together so that on the, the holiest day and time, the holiest man alive would enter the, the holiest place on earth and utter the holiest word in existence. That's the Day of Atonement. And I'll continue with this quote. And because, because this hour was beyond measure, holy and awesome, it was a time of utmost peril, not only for the high priest, but for the whole of Israel. For if in this hour there had, God forbid, entered the mind of the high priest, 
a, a false, a single false or sinful thought, the entire world would be destroyed. Later rabbinic traditions show that the high priest was actually quarantined for over a week leading up to the day to make sure that he was ritually clean. He was isolated. And on the night before, the people would actually keep him awake, preventing him from falling asleep to, to pray over him and to drill him, making sure that he would know the rituals to the dot because there was no room for error before God. The priest would take baths, several of them, before and on the day, and, and he would sleep in the cleanest, cleanest clothes and then wake up and then change into even cleaner clothes. And, and perhaps these people, way more than we do, understand the holiness of God. And there were two goats. The high priest put his hand on one of them, transferring the guilt of the people onto the goat. And the scapegoat was then set loose to go off into the wilderness to die. And you can start to see where the idea of substitutionary atonement comes from. And, and there was the other goat, which was chosen by lottery, indicating God's pick. And this other goat was killed, its body was burned whole, its blood was spilled, and the high priest carried its blood into the Holy of Holies, the whole nation, dead silent and tense, praying for this ordeal, that this would go well. He even tied a rope and bells around the high priest's waist so that, so that in the event that the high priest did something, made a mistake and displeased God and gets struck dead, that the people would at least be able to pull his body out without having to go inside. And inside, the high priest sprinkled the blood of the goat onto the mercy seat, which symbolized the throne of God, where his presence would sit in the Holy of Holies. And before the throne, the high priest prayed, asking God to forgive the sins of the people. And can you start to see the parallels now of, of the priesthood and Jesus, what he did? And when this whole ordeal was finished, the people, the people celebrated. Because, because God was still their covenantal God, and he was there, and they were his people yet. And the high priest was like, a, he was like the superhero who saved the world. But Hebrews 10.1 makes a blunt observation. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. And so if these sacrifices were actually taking away the sins completely, the people wouldn't need to be repeating these sacrifices, would they? The fact that they had to do this again and again meant that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the people didn't just need a better high priest. They also needed a better sacrifice. And so Jesus, 
became the ultimate sacrifice, spilling the only blood that would ever please God once and for all. Because a holy forgiveness calls for the spilling of righteous blood. So the question that you and I need to ask today is, is my life, is my life worth Jesus spilling his blood and losing his life over? Are, are our lives worth that? Is, is all of creation put together worth the death of the Son of God? So many people have, have told me personally that, that they've done good things, that they're good people. But let me tell you that nothing that we will ever do will bring us an iota closer to deserving the death of Christ. Nothing. You and I are people who refuse to help others all the time because it's simply not worth it. Let me explain. The, the sacrifice that we'd have to make every single time if we were to help others is, is just too great and disproportionate to the circumstances. And we make this decision consciously and subconsciously all the time. It's, it's, it's the beggar we refuse, to, we refuse to give money to because we know that in the long run, it's not going to really help. It's, those, it's even those late night texts that we get that we ignore because it's going to take up our personal time and rest. It's that friend or coworker who, who clearly had a bad day and could use a word of encouragement, but, but maybe I just want to enjoy my break right now. Or maybe I've had a long day. Or maybe I was just never close to that guy anyway. So they're not worth it, are they? All the time. They're not family. And even family is not worth it sometimes. No, my help is, my help is precious. And so I'm going to choose who gets it. No. We're not worth the blood of Christ. But that didn't stop him. In Christ's blood, do you know, do you know the worth of Christ's blood? There, there are so many different sacrifices that the, that the priests had to make. Morning sacrifices, evening ones, weekly ones, monthly ones, seasonal ones, yearly ones, and, and thanksgiving, praise, guilt, and, and sacrifices for known sins, and unintentional sins. And do you know the, the one article that is, is never described to be in the house of God. You're sitting on it. It's a chair. And so the priest stood daily offering sacrifice after sacrifice that the people brought from all the nation. And imagine the smoke filling the skies and the blood running thick. And the priest couldn't sit down. And every year, the Day of Atonement would just repeat again, proving that their sins were never really being taken away, and the people were waiting. Well, yes, what they had was good, but, but when would they enter true rest? When? 
The people waited. And it's when, it's when Jesus came to earth, born of a Virgin Mary, as a human. He went into the temple of God, we learned in John, and he knew that he would be the one to end this all. He would be the scapegoat to take on the sins of the world. He would be the lamb who was slain, the goat killed. On top of that, he would be the high priest who entered the Holy of Holies, only this time spilling his own blood to atone for mankind's sins. But when Christ, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So when Jesus died, the, the veil, the curtain in the Holy of Holies was torn, giving us access to God's presence. It's knowing what it took to enter the Holy of Holies, God's presence. It's, it's incredible. It's, in fact, unbelievable that we can now enter God's presence. You and I can do this. And Christ, rising again from the dead, overcame sin, death, and Satan, and being, and being the Son who pleased the Father, glorified in humble obedience, even to death on the cross, and was, and was given the greatest glory in return to be called the name above all names. And we now wait for the day of his return and final judgment, the judgment day when all the prophecies he gave will finally be fulfilled. The day when we, we see the full effect of his high priestly sacrifice and how Jesus freely gives his perfection, his righteousness to us in full measure. The day when, when we get to be the righteous heirs and, and submit perfectly to our rightful king, Jesus Christ, Brothers and sisters, you, you, and I have, you and I have all that we need in Jesus Christ. All for free. And on Christmas, we, we celebrate the truth that Jesus came to give himself for mankind as a gift. When the world was in total darkness, he came as a true light. He offered the truth of who God is and his salvation. He offered the atonement to obtain this salvation. And he offered his reign of peace forevermore. And what do we have to do to get all of this? What do we have to do? It's to believe in Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask the, the worship team to come up now. And as we close this Advent season of adoring Jesus as our king, prophet, and priest, we also want to close this season of waiting for the arrival of our Savior because tomorrow is Christmas when we celebrate the blessed birth of our Savior. And as with Advent tradition practiced in many churches, we've been, we've been lighting one candle every week leading up to Christmas. And the fifth and final candle is the Christ candle, which 
symbolizes how Jesus is the culmination. He's the culmination of, of hope, love, joy, and peace. The hope, love, joy, and peace that he offers us. And as we light this candle, let's remember that we are followers of Christ and his light. So let's enter into his light and live in it and keep it in our hearts and shine it in this world because, because we need it every day and so much more does this world also. Let's pray.